that's the richness of art. It's the same for AI. You don't have to have a deep understanding to have, to have some level of appreciation for the work, but the deeper you go, the richer the experience, I think, will be. Hello, and welcome to Art Goes On, a podcast featuring art people on how they keep the art world running. Here, they will share their vision of the present and a glimpse of the future. I'm your host, Pierre de Montesquieu, recording from Paris, France, so please, pardon my English. Before we start, as we try to make this show interactive, here's a quick reminder to follow our Instagram account, at askartgoeson, where you'll be able to ask questions to upcoming guests. Now, on to today's show. This is the second part of our talk on AI art. If you missed the first one, please go back to the previous episode. So is there a conflict or a division between traditional galleries or dealers and the new generation you've described? And do AI artists feel like artists or AI artists? AI artists, uh, the first step, they, they hate being called AI artists. Uh, I, I wrote about that a lot uh, in the early days, so it's partially my fault. Again, it's easy to explain to people, but I think they, if anything, they would say computational artists or machine learning artists or generative artists. But the, it, it's this tension where they've been um, kept out of the club for a long time, right, of the, the high-end art world, blue-chip art world. So they don't necessarily love the institutions that they feel like have kept them out. But at the same time, they would want acceptance because they know that globally, that's how we judge whether something's successful or not, right? So when Christie's first came out with the work by It's Obvious, I know some of the folks at Christie's that, you know, helped start that. And we had had the blockchain conference the spring before they had, had launched that. And they actually asked me to to interview Obvious at their New York event, and, and I would have, but I wasn't able to uh, attend. But the problem with that wasn't that Christie's is trying to embrace something new, like um, you know machine learning. I actually applaud that, and I think it's great. It's that they didn't have anybody on staff that was qualified or trained in understanding how the work was made and how generative art is made and what the history of generative art is. And what, what is the business that Christie's is in? They're in the business of expertise. That's really all they sell is expertise. You know, they don't make the work. They're just trusted as experts. In this particular area, again, which I implore that they moved into, they don't have expertise. And most art people don't have expertise in this area because there's nothing in a traditional art education that would, would give you this background. So it's not an insult. It's just a reality, right? So I think that that's partially why that went wrong. That didn't help when they did that. It didn't help the image of the traditional art world to AI artists because they thought, well, these morons, you know, they've gone off and done this thing and not given Robbie Barrett proper credit and they can't even tell the good work from the bad and they haven't bothered to think about how it was created and how that work was sourced and how people use each other's software. And like, it was such a surface level presentation of the work that some of these artists have been working on their whole lives, right? But at the same time, that doesn't mean that they don't want to have patrons um, and sell work and, you know, have access to a world where the work sells for more. So yeah, there's a tension there. Just to get back to this sales story and put it into context, Christie's surprisingly sold the portrait of Edmond de Bellamy for more than $400,000. And there was a polemic because obvious the French art collective that made the artwork, used the algorithm of another artist, Robbie Barrett. Yeah, that's right. And they, they didn't just use it. If you go onto GitHub, which is like a software repository where you can kind of talk back and forth, 
the artist whose work they used was a like a 18 or 19 year old um, sort of uh, uh, phenomenal uh, artist who's sort of ahead of his years or whatever. And they were pressuring, almost bordering on almost like bullying, like, you know, we need to finish this and you need to help us more and this, that, and the other. We need to. So it, it was easy to, to dislike them after reading those things. Although I've uh, interviewed at least one of them. And I think there's a, you could do several podcasts on this. They're not bad people either. Uh, they didn't come from a traditional art background. They were trying to build a startup and they saw the opportunity to kind of trick or fool people. They know that people are afraid of, uh, of AI replacing jobs and taking over, right? And they thought, well, if we play up this idea that, you know, the AI made the work and this, that, and the other. And then they kind of, when the AI, traditional AI world, you know, scientists and artists came back and said, wait, you're spreading information around the world because the story caught on, you know, globally. You're spreading false information around the world about the capabilities of AI and ML. And as a researcher, don't you, why don't you use this opportunity to actually help people understand how things really work, right? So that was part of it too. So, but they didn't, they didn't know from my interview with them that things would go as fast as they did. No one would have a reason to believe that. I, I, I understand that. They didn't know that all of a sudden Christie's was going to sell their work and it was going to sell for like, you know, $400,000. They thought, well, this is fun, right? We're making a fun project and yeah, we want to sell it because yeah, we're young and we want money and, you know, could we can put it into our company. And then all of a sudden things went a little bit faster than I think they were ready for. So it's not to defend it. I mean, at the end of the day, it largely was using Robbie's work and they did kind of pressure him to, you know, to try to help out. But it made for sort of a muddy, a muddy first date between the traditional art world and, and AI, in my opinion. So did this episode played against this type of art or on the contrary, gave it a push? That's a complicated question. So I think that tremendous amount of money was spent not because people had sort of a nuanced appreciation of the work, but on the sort of the false premise that this is the first work completely made by, you know, is the sort of the hype, right? That is why it sold for as much as it had. And as we know, things sometimes in the art market are worth a lot because they have a lot of attention, right? Not because of anything specific to, so this is sort of like the, the article I just finished for Harvard, you know, the, the reason the banana with the duct tape is worth so much is because it was written about so much, right? So it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. So it wasn't like the world got really excited and knowledgeable about the nuances of AI art as a result of this. Its value is mostly tied to the fact that it was promoted as the first AI work, you know, sold at a major auction. Now, there are there is some percentage of people that maybe had never heard of this, you know, uh, space and this kind of work before, who maybe started from that point of just, oh, wow, a big amount of money was spent, you know, at a known auction house whose curiosity may have carried them further to try to understand and maybe even learn how to code, you know, to do some coding and some training of models and to reach out to the artists and understand things a bit more. So I think it's hard to say that it helped or that it hurt. It definitely drew more attention to um, AI art and arguably even generative art, but it drew um, the attention almost under a false premise, if that makes sense. Over time, I think people as generative art and AI art become more understood and studied. Um, it'll just hash itself out, you know. Jason, I could listen to you for hours and I think we could make 10 episodes about this topic. But I'm going to jump to the last part of the show. And to try to make a transition, there's always been an opposition between men and machine. John von Neumann, in one of his first papers, described his dream of making computers as close as possible to humans or the human brain. 
and on the other hand, humans are willing to show that they are skilled and that what makes them human will always make them better than machines. And this leads me to a question from the audience, and Cora wants to know how can artists working with AI or generative art bypass the stigma surrounding the supposed lack of human effort in these works? I think through education. So as with anything, uh, humans fear things they don't understand. The more that we can help people understand the nuance and the steps involved in creating art using AI, we can develop a new appreciation for it. So the analogy I sometimes use is when we go to a museum to see a painting, even if you're not a painter, you have a general understanding that there is a stick with some hairs on the end that you dip into peg pigment and you drag it around a surface that a five-year-old can understand intuitively right away. But when you start describing generative adversarial networks, some people's eyes roll in the back of their head and they get kind of, you know, uh, bored or frustrated. But so it takes a little more work for people to understand the process. But it's really the more you understand the, the process and the artists and their background and all these things that make artwork rich, the more you'll appreciate the work. You know, when, when I go to a museum and I see a painting, because I spent uh, a decade, you know, of all my time making paintings, I look at painting different than someone who's never painted before, right? I see things, their decisions and thought processes that other people may not see and nuance. And I think that's the richness of art. It's the same for AI. I think the more we people understand sort of programming and coding and how computers work and things like that, you don't have to have a deep understanding to, to have some level of appreciation for the work. But the deeper you go, the, the uh, richer the experience, I think, will be. And another question from our audience. Jeff would like to know how will the use of AI affect the value of traditionally created art? That's an interesting question. So it could be taken a few different ways. You could say, okay, if AI is producing a lot of uh, work, you know, cheaply and people can go buy work that are created by AIs, does that reduce the desire for people to buy um, work created by a traditional artist? That would be one read of it. The other read would be that AI actually can be used to help uh, evaluate art, right? So it could change the way we um, uh, value traditional art in that Uh, AI could be used to augment um, uh, traditional appraisal systems. So that's a bit of what my, my article uh, was about. I'll answer the second question first really quickly, and then I'll come back to the, the first um, part of it. So if you look at real estate, um, for a long time, we only ever did estimates for houses that were um, up on for sale at the moment. And you would never have an idea of what the, all the other houses were worth. And then, you know, 10, 15 years ago, things like Zillow and Redfin in the US, and I'm sure there are similar things in Europe, automated the process of coming up with prices for every house, not just the ones that are for sale. And generally in economics, when you look at price disclosure and price transparency, it actually um, adds liquidity to the market. So more, a higher volume of sales when people can actually see the prices. So using machine learning and AI, uh, we're moving towards being able to produce a price for every artwork that ever existed um, and, and updating those prices regularly, um, rather than having to, to only evaluate the, the works that are for sale using manual, slow and expensive and manual processes. And just like with a real estate market, that could uh, increase liquidity I and mean, we could see a higher volume of sales, which ultimately could drive up the, the value competition and, and overall size of the art market if done, if done well. And then on the first 
uh, interpretation of the question. You know, what happens if machines start producing all of these artworks? Will people just buy, you know, an artwork that came out of an algorithm that in some of these algorithms can produce near infinite images uh, instead of buying uh, a painting or something like that? I think to understand that question, we have to shift away from the idea of art as just being an image. I think, you know, art is an experience and, and many of the generative artists would argue that the artwork is the code. It's not any single image that comes out of it, right? And if we're thinking that generative art could replace traditional art for what I would call decoration, you know, for the people that are literally just buying decoration, maybe, but I think um, that's, that's less important. From the work that I've seen, the most exciting part of any of the AI art or the generative art, literally the most exciting part, is the human element. And the, the few sort of sad um, attempts that I've seen, mostly technologists who don't have really a training or understanding or background or appreciation in art, a lot of technologists are like, aha, I can build you know, an algorithm that will just automatically, because all these abstract artworks that my five-year-old could do, like I've always known this is dumb, and now I can use you know, a code to show how dumb it is and produce endless artworks and people will just use this. Well, you know, it's obvious to anyone who appreciates and understands and values art that there's no trace of humanity or interest in the work they're producing, right? It's just producing garbage, you know, and we've been able to mass produce garbage for a long time, long before um, machine learning and AI, right? So you could um, have built a robot that just dropped buckets of paint, you know, a machine that dropped buckets of paints on canvas you know, 500, 400 years ago, some pretty unsophisticated machines, but you still could have done it. Now, does that mean that the, the canvases that rolled under and had paint dropped on them are art? I mean, conceptually, maybe the person who built the machine is doing something sort of interesting, but the outputs, you know, I, I guess I would leave it to your audience. You know, if a machine mass produces images um, and that's a threat to what we see as the human's traditional role in art, then maybe we need to revisit what the role of a human is in creating art. I think it's more than just making images. People think that programmatic art um, has no accidents because they're like, well, if you execute the program, it happens the same every single time. It's the nature of a program, right? Um, but every single artist, and I interview a lot of generative artists and my own generative art practice, they'll tell you the only thing that keeps us going with, with coded art is that every time you hit go and run it, it produces things that shock and surprise us. Does that mean it's completely random and we had no control over it? No, it's like a watercolor painting, right? There's, you know, there are levers we can pull and buttons we can push, you know, uh, variables we can tweak and, and routines we can run and, you know, functions we can add that we generally know what direction it's gonna go, but we still get surprised, right? And that's understanding that um, and experiencing that is maybe the fastest way to really grow an appreciation for generative art versus thinking it's some cold, mechanistic robot goes off and does it on its own. It's really poetic, actually, and, and it's uh, no different, in my opinion, than sort of the painting process in terms of the balance between control and, and randomness. Wonderful. So now the question I ask all my guests, do you have in mind an artwork that reflects today's society or the time we are currently living? As much as I love generative art, a lot of it, at least the traditional stuff, I think is um, often more uh, geometric and, and aesthetic. And I think the interesting aspects of it are uh, in, in its creation and development of systems. But given a chance to talk about more socially what I think is going on today, I think I flip more over to the crypto art side. So, you know, crypto art is trying to make it so that people from all around the world without having to get into galleries can get their work in front of people and, and get 
some recognition. And so there's an artist, Prince Jakan Osanochi from Nigeria, who uh, grew up with very limited access to computers, where he lives in Nigeria, and with very strong social rules, um, anti-LGBTQ rules, um, and, and you know norms that are pretty conservative and aggressive and can be punished by, you know, uh, beatings or going to jail and things like that. So against all those odds, he ended up using Microsoft Word in an internet cafe to create, no one uses Microsoft Word to make artwork, right? And he creates these beautiful, amazing artworks that are social commentaries that rail against his government and, and sort of the norms there but in brilliant ways. So he's not, you know, protest art is sort of traditionally this aggressive, uh, angry kind of work. And his work is really, it's um, existence as protest, I think is how he describes it. So he's just showing these people being themselves, whether they're part of the sort of the gay community or single moms or these, you know, uh, doing uh, everyday average things, being themselves, you know, and just by getting those images out there uh, as those being uh, happy, well-adjusted people is making a pretty strong statement. Now, 20 years ago, he'd probably have done that and none of us would know about it. But because of the blockchain and the crypto art community, you know, he was able without having to ask permission to get his work up into several markets. And folks like myself who think it's really sincere and genuine and hits the, you know, hits the mark and really well done and unique because of the, his process and his tools are, are free to go and support him and, and collect the work. And I think it's a tribute to the direction that, that crypto art could take us. You know, being in art school for, for a lot of my life, I think sometimes folks add sort of too heavy handed, bring in social themes into their artwork. Often when the, the artwork isn't very interesting, they'll, they'll try to make it feel more important by pouring on some sort of political or, or you know, social statement. But I think with uh, Osanachi's work, it's just so obvious that it, it's done with sincerity and, and bravery. And it reminds me, you know, sometimes we make art too safe and it's too abstract and we're too distant from the human side. But it reminds me that art's greatest strength as a, as a tool or a weapon is really around sort of revolution and change, right? And that you can do that with sincerity still. And you can do it from a place where no one thinks art's going to come from and get access to a larger world. So I know that's not one work, but I recommend folks check out um, all his work. He's got work showing at the Kate Vass Gallery right now. I've written about him on artgnome.com. I think Osanachi might be his Twitter handle. But yeah, I just, the word, it, it kind of re restores my faith in the role of art to be something more than just commodified um, replacement for dollar bills. Well, I think that's the best conclusion possible to our talk. Jason, thank you for enlightening us so greatly on AI and generative art. It was fascinating. I'm sure I'll call you back in a few months to dig it even further. Yeah, thank you for having me. And if folks want to um, reach out, I'm very easy to access. I'm just jason at artgnome.com. And then my blog is just artgnome.com. So always excited to, to nerd out on these topics and answer any questions folks might have. Great. Thanks again, Jason. Bye-bye. Yep. Take care, Pierre. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Art Goes On. If you liked what you heard, feel free to follow and share the show on Apple, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or on YouTube leave a rating or review to help people find the show. Thanks again.